thanks for joining us for the Unexpected Jesus series as we walk through the book of Mark at Doxa Church. Doxa Church exists to equip people to live for Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. For more information, go to doxa-church.com. We're going to look at Mark 6 together, so if you have your Bibles, turn there. We're going to look at uh, 1 through 30. Those are the verses we're going to look at, 1 through 30. And uh, if, you were, if you were with us last week, you remember we talked last week about uh, the idea that Jesus' timing may not be preferable to us, but it is perfect. And the two characters in particular in the story last week, we saw Mark put a huge emphasis on their faith and what their faith produced. And it wasn't the faith itself, but the object of their faith, Jesus, that they were putting their hope in. This week, we're going to talk about the idea that our faith is costly, that our response to Jesus is costly. Uh, and in, in some ways, I, I want you to hear this on both sides. Whether you do or don't follow Jesus, it will cost you. There is a cost to following him. There's a cost to not following him. And the question I want us to ask is, have we counted the cost? Have we counted the cost of following or not following Jesus? Uh, let's start in verse 1, because what you're going to see here is several costs for following or not following Jesus. He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. His hometown is Nazareth, and uh, it's very small. Uh, there, there's about 60 acres of rocky hillside that the houses are kind of cut out, out of. Uh, there are about 500 people that live there when Jesus was there. So a very, very small population, very, very small town. That's what he returns to. As you can imagine, everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everything about everybody, right? That's, a, that's how a small town works, 500 people. There's no way you're growing up in that town without everybody talking about little Jesus down the street and what he's up to. So that's, that's what's going on. And on the Sabbath day, verse 2, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. This was a regular practice for Jesus. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? So he's going back home. He's teaching now in his home synagogue. Where has he gotten these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, when you first read that, you, you, you think, oh, they're amazed at Jesus. You know, what happened to this kid? Grew up, he went away, came back. What changed? I mean, that, that, that would be your first assumption, but that's not really what it's about. There is some amazement, no doubt, but it's amazement coupled with skepticism. Listen to what they say next in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph? It's actually Joseph, by the way, uh, the translation would be, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, one thing that's important to note is Jesus had absolutely no formal education in terms of rabbinical school. He didn't go away to theological school or Bible school or get trained uh, like a typical rabbi would. In fact, John 7, verse 15 through 16 says this, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man, Jesus, has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And I want to stop here and just encourage us, family. Uh, I often find that people un unnecessarily, and I think even to our peril, 
put confidence in people's theological education. You know, what school did you go to? In fact, I will say this, up until coming here, I hardly had anybody ask me what, where I went to school, but I know that we value education a lot in Seattle, and I do too, but I've gotten asked about where I went to school more often here than I have anywhere else. And that, if any of you did that, don't worry, I'm not like shaming you. I'm not trying to say bad. I'm just saying, please don't put your confidence in my theological education. Okay? I mean, I, I did get a good one, and I'm thankful for it, but that's not what makes me effective. What makes me effective is the Spirit of God alive in me and the Word of God that I proclaim that changes people. So it's like, and I, the reason why I say that is because I want you to realize if you are born again of the Spirit of God, if you are a regenerate believer in Jesus Christ, you've been given a new life through faith in what he's done for you through his life, his death, and his resurrection, then you have as much as I've got in terms of an ability because you have the Spirit of God who inspired the Word of God to be written, and when you open this with the Spirit of God at work in you, you can also learn and grow and teach and help others just like I can. So let's please not, yeah, yeah, I think that's worthy of, of our applause because here's the deal. So many of us buy into the idea that I am special, and I'm not. I mean, I'm special because I'm a son of God, but I'm like you, and, and God has gifted all of you with different gifts, but every one of us who's been born again of the Spirit have the same Spirit that was in Jesus and have the same Word of God that He proclaimed. So we, we're not lacking, and I want you to hear this because as we consider what it means to be a church on mission in the everyday stuff of life, I want us to keep in mind that that is not dependent upon our education. It's dependent on the Spirit of God and the Word of God to make us effective. And so I want to encourage us, family, uh, as we talk about what it means to be the people sent out on mission in everyday life, remember that's all of us that God wants to use and work through, and it's all of us that he can work through. So uh, let, let's, let's re-embrace re it if you've forgotten it. But there will be a cost for us to be the kind of church that's going to be out on mission in the everyday stuff of life, that's going to believe that God can use every one of us to share Jesus with others. There'll, there'll be real cost, and Jesus experiences it. Listen to what, how they treat him. They call him the carpenter. Can you imagine coming back to your hometown? And they're like, that's the carpenter. That's the son of Mary, the brother of these people, this man. Notice they don't, they don't refer to him directly. Hey, Jesus, what's going on? They don't talk to him by name. It's very much third person, and it's very much distancing themselves from Jesus. They, they don't want to associate with him. Let me ask you, do you, do you use Jesus' name? Do you speak about Jesus? Or is it kind of like, you know, you know, man, it's a man upstairs. Which, which floor are you talking about? Third, fourth, fifth? You know, or, you know, the guy in the sky. You know, the big man. Who are you talking about? Jesus is his name. And the reason why I want to stop here is because even those of us who know him oftentimes distance ourselves from him by being afraid to actually speak about him by name. Why? Count the cost. His name needs to be proclaimed. A world needs to hear of Jesus. There is no salvation apart from his name. 
There is no good news for forgiveness of sins and eternal life forever apart from the name of Jesus. And so I want to encourage us, family, let's not slip into the, the hometown crowd here in fearing that someone knows we're connected to Jesus Christ. In fact, here, here's a, let, let me just offer this up to you. It's clear they don't know him. Otherwise, they would proclaim him. And for us, you, if you know him, you love him. And if you love him, you proclaim him. We talk about what we love most. I know we do. Uh, I, I, I've never been with someone who doesn't talk about their, their kids or their spouse or their friends uh, or the team that they support or Russell Wilson, for that matter, right? We're not ashamed of those names because we're, we're you know, maybe you were this last year a few times, but, uh, but you know, like overall, you're, you're, you, you talk about what you love most, you talk about what you're impressed most, you talk about what, what matters most. So if we don't talk about Jesus, it's very possible you don't know him. That's all. It's the only assumption I could come up with. Or we never counted the cost that we were actually going to have to be rejected for him. And this isn't, and by the way, family, this is not to, to in any way bring shame on you. I, I, just, I just want for more, I want you all to count the cost and ask, why don't I talk about him? What, what am I believing that would lead me to not talk about the most important person in the world? What am I believing in a moment about the people I'm with that has somehow given me more fear of them than of him? What am I believing in a moment that has made me love what they think of me more than what he's done for me? He cried out from a cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He speaks on our behalf before God the Father right now, a way better word than anybody in the world will ever say about you. And of anyone who knows you don't deserve it, it's him. And yet because of his death on the cross and his life risen again, he has every right to say over you, you're dearly loved, you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're righteous, you're a child of God, you're, you're a co-heir with Christ. You get to enjoy the eternal inheritance of Jesus forever because of what he did. Why wouldn't we talk about that? There's a world dying to hear it. Maybe we haven't count, counted the cost. It's interesting that they refer to him as son of Mary Typically, you would say, Jesus, son of Joseph. And there are many who assert that maybe this is because Joseph is dead at this point, though there's not a lot of proof of that. There's others who believe it's because Mary was much more well-known. Some believe that the gospel writer, Mark in particular, is wanting to make sure we hear that there was an affirmation of the virgin birth. And that may be the case, though I think it's the last one, and that is that they wanted to reference the out-of-wedlock nature of Jesus' birth. Because they're, they're tearing him down. They're, they're, they're trying to destroy his credibility. And there's no better way to do it than to say, do you understand how he came to be? Do you understand she wasn't married? Do you understand who this woman is? Do you understand who this son is? Do you understand this is the fruit of adultery in their mind? It wasn't, we know it wasn't because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But, but as far as they're concerned, it's a great way to throw, throw Jesus down. Either way, we know that they took offense at him. And the word offense here comes from the Greek word scandalon, which means a stumbling block. It means to cause to stumble or to be put off or to repel. First Peter uses the same language when he refers to Jesus as the cornerstone on which the entire spiritual house that we enjoy was built, that we are come to Jesus, as we come to Jesus, the cornerstone, we become living stones, we become a living house in which God dwells, and he says that this stone is a stone of offense 
It's a scandalous stone, and those who don't believe it are scandalized by it. They can't accept the reality of the fact that in the gospel, the God of the universe would humble himself and take on flesh and dwell amongst us in a little town of Nazareth and be unnoticed for 30 years. And then when he engages in his public ministry, the people he chooses to associate with are in some ways the scum of the earth, according to the religious leaders, the unclean, the rejected, the, the sick, the broken. Who would ever think that that's what God would do? Doesn't God always get the people that are perfect? No, he gets the people who need to be made perfect by him. Scandalous. And it gets even more scandalous because in the gospel, we're told that this God took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived a life of humility, was not worshipped or praised as he deserved, instead was crucified on a cross, a Roman cross, for the sins of the people. And on that cross, we're told, he took on our sin. Literally, he who knew no sin, who had never sinned, who had only ever done perfectly righteous behavior, submitted to God the Father for us on our behalf, becomes our sin at the cross. Scandalous. And then he is dead. More scandal. And then he rises again on the third day to vindicate his death, to show that it actually accomplished what he set forth to do, that it is the wage of sin paid on our behalf, that it is the the end of death for us, that it is the beginning of new life eternal for us. And here's what's really crazy. You get it by doing nothing but believing it. Scandal, especially to people who take a great deal of pride in what they do. You're telling me That one day I'm going to stand before God and the only reason I'm going to be accepted and loved, forgiven with his grace is merely because I believe someone else had to do it for me and Jesus did. I don't get to stand there and go, but I went to church and I gave and I read my Bible and I prayed and I did good deeds and God's going to go, well, there you go. You measured up. Way to go, good boy. You're not going to get that. You're going to stand before God and go, Apart from Jesus, I've got nothing. My best attempts are dirty rags compared to the righteousness of Jesus. Scandal. Especially for those of us who would love to be able to stand before God and puff up our chest and say, look what I did. Those of us who stand that way will never stand. The only ones who will stand are the ones who fall on their knees before Jesus as the only hope for making us righteous. It's Scandalous, And you think about how scandalous it is for us to hear this. Think about what it was like for his hometown to hear that the kingdom of God is breaking through Jesus. Carpenter, son of Mary, brother to these guys and girls. Jesus says, verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Now, up till there, then, that point, that's a, a, a very popular proverb that was spoken in that day. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. But he adds to it. And among his relatives. And in his own household. You hear what Jesus is saying? I'm rejected by my own family. According to John 7, 5, we find out Jesus' own brothers did not believe, him, believe in him during his ministry. His own, his own family. 
And we hear of only James, maybe Jude, coming to faith after his death and resurrection. Now that's crazy. Jesus' own brothers and sisters don't believe. Please hear this. This is super important for us to get. Exposure to Jesus does not equate to faith in Jesus. In fact, I'll tell you, one of my, one of my greatest fears is that people will spend their entire life in the church hearing about Jesus and never know him. That we will sit back and go, that was a great message. Way to preach it, Jeff. You did a great job with the text. And you won't walk away and go, Jesus is awesome. Not just that he's impressive, but I know him. I know his love. I know his relationship with me is very real. And I'm more and more convinced that we're going to be more and more surprised on that day that there will be people who spent their entire life in the church and never knew Jesus. Never knew him. You know what I'm also concerned about? It's my own children. I I love them and we lead them to Jesus, but I want them to love Jesus, not just love what we say about Jesus. There is a difference. And I pray that's true for them. And I pray for them regularly. God, give them a deep longing, an incredible affection for Jesus Christ. I spent 21 years growing up in the church not knowing Jesus until I was 21. He opened my eyes. I'm telling you, it changed everything for me. The cost seems nothing to me anymore. Ask anything you want, Jesus. I, I love you. You gave your life for me. I'll do anything you want me to do. Anything. By the way, that's a sign. And what Mark wants us to get through this passage is those who really know and love Jesus will say you can ask for anything because they know he gave them everything and he's worth everything. So I just, it's a bit of a warning, church, family. Don't assume because you've been here and heard that you know him because if you're not willing to identify with him, you should ask why. What's going on? Now maybe we've given in to the world and fear of man, and we need to repent of that today. But my biggest concern is not what you do, it's why you do it. Do you have a deep love for Jesus? Do you know him? Because there's a cost. There's a cost for knowing him. He will demand everything. Not so that you're saved, but because He saved you so you could give him your life. The whole point is, if you you think that, that, that Jesus saved you so you could have your way, you missed it. He saved you so you could have his way. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the best life. And he wants you to have that. But it's very possible, maybe we're going kind of cost. I just I think I could do better with my own life. And can I just warn you what you're gonna see in this passage is that's just not true. You will destroy your life apart from Jesus. There's a cost, one way or the other. And he could do no mighty work, verse 5 there. This is a sad statement. He could do no mighty work. Here we, previously, we hear a story of a woman who just touches his cloak and she's healed. And now he can't do anything. This is one of those I can't wait to talk to Jesus about and go like, what happened? Well, we know they didn't believe, and yet there's this mystery of of faith and work and how our faith in Jesus produces work. 
And, 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 and there's this, this place where, like, I, I, I've experienced in my life, I don't know if you've experienced, but, but when, I, when I walk in faith in Jesus, I see Jesus do mighty works in my life. And when I fought, walk in faith in Jeff, I see what that leads to, and it's not mighty and it's not great. And they experience this. They experience the cost of not following Jesus, which is they didn't get to experience the mighty work of Jesus. Let me ask you, where might you be presently missing out on the work of Jesus in your life? In fact, you might say, well, I know him and I love him, but let me ask, are there places where you're still keeping him at distant distance? You're just like, Jesus, that's, that's not yours. Don't touch that. Don't go there. You're going to miss out on the work of him in that area in your life. Give him everything. And some of us, maybe we miss him because he's not, we're kind of expecting, you know, the, the trumpets. Uh, we, I've had the joy of seeing a, a new believer this last year, a woman come to faith, and we're getting to spend some time discipling her, and she keeps saying, I just keep waiting for the trumpets. I'm like, there aren't any trumpets. At least not yet. Like, there, there's not fanfare. There's, the, the work of God isn't always impressive. I mean, it is to him, but we can't see it. We can't see how amazing it is. It looks normal. It looks mundane. It looks like the everyday because that's how he came. He came into the everyday in a very humble way, and they missed him because of that. Please don't miss him because of the stuff that he's doing. Doesn't, it just doesn't seem impressive. He wants every aspect of your life to, be, to matter. I've been working out lately. Can you tell? <laughs> I'm nothing like Tim. The whole time I'm like, Dude, when he said that, like, the legs day, that was like, that, like, your friends don't let you skip leg day. Like, I've got some, our missional community, I'm like, okay, it's leg day, I hate leg day, right? I just hate it. What I've learned to do, just so you know, is I've actually learned to invite Jesus into leg day. <laughs> right? I mean, because, like, I get up, I'm like, I don't want to do it. It's gonna, it's just, it's no fun. My legs are already too big because I played soccer. I don't want them bigger. Like, some of you guys are going, shut up, you, you know, quit fanning yourself. Anyway, but I don't like jeans fitting too tightly. I'm like, I don't want to do what, but really it's because it hurts, right? And so, I literally, I will get up on leg day and go, Jesus, help me. Will you do work to get me up? Will you do work to keep me up? Will you do work to, and I'm literally, sometimes I'm praying through my workouts. Now, some of you guys are going like, he doesn't really care about that. Yes, he does. And when I can realize that he cares about every single part of my life, then I start to open up all of my life to Jesus and I learn to make my life a prayer, a life of dependency, a life of worship, a life where I say, okay, I want you in on this one and I want you in on this one, I want you in on this one. This business discussion, this conversation with a neighbor, this hard work with a friend, this way of loving my my wife by doing the dishes, like all that, I want you in on all of it because I want your work to show up through my life. Jesus. I want the name of Jesus on my lips. I want him in the, the, the life of Jesus on my heart. I want, I want the, the truth of Jesus on my mind. I want everything I do to be for Jesus because I want Jesus to be in everything I do. But there's a cost to that because here's what I found. He'll change you. He'll, he'll, he'll instruct you. He'll, he'll remove things. He'll reorder things. He'll, he'll get you to see that what you were doing was wrong at times. There's a cost. But man, I'd rather have the cost of Jesus changing my life than the cost of trying to do life without Jesus. It's also a cost on mission. After Jesus is rejected in his hometown, he begins his third preaching tour in Galilee. And you're going to see that the shift starts to be towards his disciples and 
training and sending them out. And before I, I read this next passage, I want to let you know again, we have another sandwich. Those of you who have been with us uh, know that this has happened a few times in Mark's writing where you'll have one story, but it's sandwiched right in the middle of it is another story. And in this story, you have the sending of the, the 12 out on mission, but sandwiched right in the middle of that story is the death, the, the martyrdom of John the Baptist. And he didn't have to put it in the middle. I mean, it's not like Mark went, oh, while they were out, this happened. He's actually putting it in the middle to help us understand that the mission leads to martyrdom, that discipleship leads to death. That following Jesus leads to death to self. Now, some of you are going like, well, that doesn't sound good. Well, let me just say this. Following Jesus leads to death to self. Not following Jesus leads to death because of yourself. One leads to a death that leads to life because Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So when you follow Jesus, he will call you to die. Die to a lot. Die to everything but Jesus, ultimately. But if you say, well, I don't want to do that, just so you know, you've already chosen to die. You've just chosen to die because of your sin and the destructive behaviors that you engage in, which lead to a lot of death. And that's part of what he wants us to understand here is, the, the, the 12 are being sent out, in a sense, to die. And in the middle of it, we see someone else who's not only taking life, but experiencing his own destruction because of the way that he rejects Jesus. So let's keep going. Verse 6. He went out above among the villages teaching, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Once again, we see Jesus very different than the rabbis who didn't, didn't send their, their disciples out. They wouldn't really, they would always go with them and they would kind of lead the way and always be in charge. And here's, this is so, such a cool thing about Jesus is he trains them and he sends them out to be his representatives. You know, that's what he's, he's doing with you and I. He's entrusting into our hands his authority, his message, his kingdom. And some of you might look at this and go, what is he thinking? These guys are a joke, right? I mean, if you've been with us, they just get in the way. Half the time, they're fighting Jesus, and they don't even get his message. They don't understand his teaching. Why would you send them out, Jesus, to, to tell the message of the kingdom on your behalf and not actually go around with them wherever they go and go, no, no, they got it wrong. No, no, they're messing up. Don't believe that. That was wrong, right? Like my Parents, you know what I'm talking about with your kids? You're like, Okay, they, they make their bed. You're like, that's not exactly how I'd like it done. Like, we'd like the corners a little tighter. And, like, when you put the dishes in the dishwasher, you need to rinse them out. Well, no, no, let me help you. Right? That's us. Jesus just sends them out. You want to talk about divine humility. To send the disciples out as his representatives is crazy at this point. And yet he does. And the only conclusion you could come up with is that Jesus has more confidence in himself and his call and the power that enabled him to do it than he does in his disciples. I mean, I don't know how you can come with another conclusion after you read the story so far. Mark's made a really good case of why you shouldn't trust these guys. Right? But why does Jesus do it? Because Jesus isn't dependent upon our abilities to expand his kingdom. And this is really good news for us, family. I want you to hear this. Like some of you go like, I just gotta wait till I get better trained. I need to know more, how to answer more questions. Uh, until I'm ready, I can't go. Have you noticed that when I go through the four G's, that grow is at the end, not the beginning. Gather, go, give, grow. That, that's intentional, by the way. Because I know you, don't go, you won't grow unless you go. 
You don't grow up in the Christ-likeness by sitting in a classroom talking about it. You grow up in the Christ-likeness by going out on his behalf in a place that will reject you and where you'll not be able to do anything he calls you to do apart from his power and presence in your life. The way you grow up in Christ is by going on behalf of Christ. That's how it works. Some of you have known that all along. You've been going like, I think I see what he's doing here. You know, you're, you're those people who like really like mystery games and you, you made the conclusion real quick. You know? You're like, he put grow at the end. I wonder why. Because you don't actually grow unless you go. And part of what Jesus' disciples are going to learn is they're not going to grow in their dependency on God until they actually have to depend on God. For many of you, I want to encourage you, if you've been sitting kind of, just kind of back going, I'm not, I'm not ready for mission, can I just tell you, you will not grow up into being a disciple of Christ who's mature apart from it. It's the most brilliant thing Jesus does is send them out to something they can't do apart from his power. It's brilliant. You know how you teach people how to swim? You have classes and you have diagrams and you read books about great swimmers and you, know, you study swimming. No, you throw them in the water, right? And what's crazy is when you throw a baby in the water, they just, like, just start swimming because they have to. The problem is, is the longer you wait to swim, the harder it is to learn how to swim. Same with true for many of us. The longer you wait to get on the mission of Jesus, the harder it is to actually go on mission with Jesus. Some of you need to go, like, I've got to count the cost. I've I, I got to step out in faith. I, I, I need Jesus, so I better do what requires Jesus. The mission does. But here's the good news. He doesn't send them out alone. Some of you are going like, I'm not ready. None of us are ready. Let's be clear. I was not ready when I first started ministry. I started uh, full-time ministry as a youth pastor a year and a half after I came to faith in Jesus. A year and a half. Now, I grew up in the church, so I knew a lot of stuff, but it was only a year and a half. I was not qualified to be a youth pastor. And you know what? If I didn't do that, I would not have become qualified. Because the only way I grow up in ministry is by becoming a minister. I tell people all the time, seminaries and Bible schools do not train pastors, churches do on mission. I'm not against them. They train theologians. But you don't learn how to get, be a disciple maker until you make disciples. And I want to encourage this family. I know some of us are we're like, oh, I don't know, I want to go out there. It's going to be hard. Well, don't go alone. Jesus sends us out in a team. It's, it's kind of like what we hear in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, in other words, when they fall, let's just say that, because you will, and I hope you've been hearing it over and over again this last year, because we believe in the grace of the gospel, we can fail. Because we believe in the grace of the gospel, we can step out into things that we aren't capable of doing, trusting that God's not only for us, but he will actually be with us, and he will empower us to do good work. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to one who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Can I just say this, family? Please don't be alone any longer if you are alone right now. You're, you're, no, you're not meant to be alone. And the work that Jesus calls you to is too costly by yourself. There is kind of a cost of our arrogance. Uh, the cost of our arrogance is I don't need anybody else to confront me, to speak into my life, to challenge me, to help me. I can do this without everybody. And I'm just gonna tell you that kind of pride is the beginning of your fall. And you'll fall alone and we don't want that. We want you to fall with people who can pick you up, who can help you. Submit yourself to others. Be on mission together. That's why we don't even want a missional community to be led by one person. We want it to be a team of people who can carry it together, who can submit to one another, who can help each other. 
And the mission requires there to be agreement. Listen to Deuteronomy 19, 15. Not only do we need to have help from each other and complementary giftings from each other, but we need to have others who believe the same thing we believe. Deuteronomy 19, 15 says, a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus knows as he sends them out, he's sending them out to a group of people who aren't gonna believe it on one witness. They need to have two or three. Can I, can I tell you one of the most powerful ways of witnessing to the world of what we believe is when there's more than one together saying the same thing. When we say, no, you might think they're nuts, then I'm nuts too, because I believe the same thing they believe. And my life has been changed because of Jesus. And yours has too, right? Yes, mine has too. Why don't you tell them how he changed your life? Well, I'll tell you. And also they're going, wait a minute. I thought you were a nutcase. You're all nutcases. Or maybe I'm the nutcase. Because I'm not believing there's good news in Jesus. Maybe I'm missing it. And then as he tells them to go out, he tells them not to go alone, but he also tells them what to take. Verse eight, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Basically, they got a staff to walk with and protect with, one tunic, that's it, the clothes on their back, a belt, hold it all together, but no bread, no bag, no money. Now, if, if some of you know the story of, of Egypt and Israel and their rescue from Egypt. You remember on that night when they had the Passover meal, remember what God tells them? This actually is almost a restatement, almost identical to what God calls them to do on on that Passover meal. Remember in Exodus 12, 11? He basically just says, you know what, just have your your cloak ready, kind of, you know, girded up, ready to run with your belt and your sandals on, staff in hand, get ready. And what, what, what is he doing here? He's giving them a picture, a reminder that God delivered them from Egypt, from enslavement, from, from Pharaoh, and they, they ran out. And what did God do? He plundered the Egyptians and he gave them everything they needed. And then for 40 years in the wilderness, their sandals did not wear out and they had food every single day showing up on the ground. What is he trying to help his disciples understand? Just like I did it then, I'll do it again. And just like I rescued them from slavery, I'm sending you out now to be good news people to see other people rescued from the slavery of Satan and sin. Just like you saw me cast out demons or deliver the demoniac, now I'm sending you out to just like God sent his people out and he will take care of every one of your needs so that the people will see the power of God bring about deliverance in your life. That's what's going on. So they, they know this is, cat, this is like, this is like the, the most cataclysmic event for them. Like this is the the defining of the kingdom of God, breaking in to see souls saved. This is what we're doing. Family, can I encourage you? There is a real cost to a world that will go to hell without Jesus. Can we count that cost together? Can Can we realize that he's sending us out so that others can be set free? Count the cost of your friends, of your neighbors, of your family members, not knowing Jesus. Count it. It's worth counting. It is huge. The cost is big. It should grip our hearts. And so they go out. But he tells them not to take much also because he knows that he doesn't want them to be hindered by anything. This is a good word for us, family. In a day when bigger is better and more is our master, we can easily get weighed down with so much stuff that it's a hindrance to our mission. But if I said this, man, I might lose that. If I stood up for integrity, I might lose my job, which would mean I might lose my house, which might mean 
Gosh, I can't do that. That's too costly. Is it? Is it worth us living without integrity? Is it worth us living as enslaved people to our money, to our stuff? When Janie and I packed up from Tacoma to move to Redmond, I was embarrassed. We have too much stuff. Some of you should move every four years. You know, just go like, whoa, what have we done? I just wanted to like go, just drive the truck off a cliff somewhere. I don't, I don't need it. <laughs> Let's just go get a sleeping bag and sleep on the floor. I mean, I don't, no, I want my mattress. I like that. That's really nice. But other than that, you know, I'm kind of like Steve. Remember, some of you guys saw the jerk, you know, and Steve Martin. Like, you know, I don't need anything except for this lamp. And, and the, you know, <laughs> that's us, right? And then pretty soon we're walking around with all this stuff on our back going, man, it's really hard to be on mission. I got so much stuff I got to be concerned about. I don't have time for mission. Get rid of it. Why? Why would we keep holding on to stuff that would keep us from being obedient to Jesus? Why would we keep holding on to stuff that would keep us from enjoying the fruit of him seeing people come into the kingdom forever through our words, through our lives? Like, why would we love stuff more than people? Why would we love stuff more than Jesus? I'm not saying you have to get rid of everything. I'm just saying, ask yourself, is there anything that's become so important to you that it has controlling power over your life that you can't actually obey Jesus because that's become more important than Jesus? Count the cost. It's worth losing it. I had a conversation with a woman this last week who's come to faith and, and it's just changing her world. I mean, she is, I can tell she's really met Jesus because everything's changing and she's re. She's reconsidering everything. She's the COO of a company, and, and she called me and said, hey, you know, I'm standing up for some things right now in my company that I cannot put my name behind anymore now that I know Jesus. And I will likely lose my job for it, or I'll have to quit my job for it, one of the two. And I said, you will never regret counting the cost for Jesus and being willing to lose all for him because he lost everything for you. It's not hard to give everything for him. And he will always provide for you. He can plunder the Egyptians any day he wants. He can make your sandals never wear out. He can provide food on the ground the next day. He is a great provider, and he wants his disciples to run out unhindered on the mission that he sent them. And so I want to ask you, what's keeping you from obeying him? It may be not that you, don't need, to, you need to get rid of it. Maybe you just need to repent of loving it too much. Maybe you just need to turn from it and say, I've been worshiping this. I want to worship the one who gave his life for me. Jesus, whatever you ask of me is not too much because you gave me everything. What do you want? And then he tells them how to act. Verse 10, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when, they, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. That, by the way, was for the Jews a reminder that when they would travel outside of Palestine, when they came back, they were supposed to shake themselves of any of the dust from the, the other nations so that they wouldn't pollute the Holy Land. And what Jesus is saying, because they're going, think about this, they're going to God's people to tell them about Jesus, and he's saying if they don't receive you, then just take the dust off you at that point and move on. What he's saying is tell them they're heathens. Tell them that they rejected God. That's what he's saying. To God's people. And it brings to mind what Paul says in Romans 9, 6. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Just because you grew up in it doesn't mean you know them. Just because you grew up in Christianity doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you grew up in the church doesn't mean you love Jesus. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and 
healed them. These are all the same words that Mark has used up until this point to describe Jesus' ministry except for the oil part. So on one hand, Mark is saying now the ministry of Jesus has continued through his disciples, but the word oil is very important because that word oil is a reminder that in Psalm we're told that there's, there's this kind of oil of gladness when the good news is preached. There's a sense of, of hope that's being brought to the nations. And that oil that we also know has very powerful healing elements, and I know that my, my wife and Kirby and others who all love essential oils right here are going, tell them about essential oils. Sorry, I'm not gonna, but... God has given us a natural way to be healed, but he's also given us a supernatural way as well. And, and what you see is the two coming together, that God loves to work through normal forms in supernatural ways, which for all of us should be a great news to us that he's, he's calling us to be that, a natural form, kind of a, a normal, everyday person who God does miraculous stuff through. And then last, we get to the center of the, the Mark's sandwich. <laughs> we hear about John the Baptist. It's interesting, there's only two times where Mark doesn't talk about Jesus and his narratives in the gospel, and both times are about John. The first one we already talked about as a foreshadow, forerunner of Jesus' message and ministry. The second, which is actually right here, is all about Mark's description of martyrdom for following Jesus, of suffering for Jesus, of dying for Jesus, and it really is a prefigure, a forerunner of Jesus' death. It's really Mark's first passion narrative in his gospel. And there's a reason why he puts it right in the middle, like I said earlier, and that is because he wants us to understand that there is a cost. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. So he's hearing about the disciples being out there and what's going on. Somehow it become known to him. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah, but others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. And these were the three prevailing views about Jesus, that he was either John the Baptist raised from the dead, Elijah come back return, or another prophet like the one of old. And, uh, and, then, and then yet Herod has a different view. But before I go to that, I want to just pause and, and, and make note that these three kind of categories of thought about Jesus are actually respected forms of seeing him. I mean, these are revered people. John the Baptist, Elijah, and the prophets. And yet, they don't have faith in him. So you can think highly of Jesus and still not have faith in Jesus. And Herod is not thinking poorly, but he is thinking with fear, because listen to what he says when he heard of it. He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now that's scary. You take a guy's head off and he comes back at you? Like, I can understand the fear in that, right? What happened to John? Verse 17, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. That's his wife. But it was his brother Philip's wife because he had married her. A little background here. Herod, Herod is a wicked man. He is a messed up man. In fact, uh, reports tell us that one of the places where he built the place where he lives was on a pagan cemetery. Now, if you're a good Jew, you don't build your house on a cemetery. If you're just a normal person, you don't do that. <laughs> but a Jew certainly doesn't do that. He was a, they all considered Herod a fake Jew. And yet here he is giving rule, rule over this territory. Uh, and then, of course, he wants his brother's wife, so he convinces her to divorce her husband. And he's married, so he has to get rid of his wife to be able to get with his brother's wife. This is a messed up guy. 
Okay? And there's a lot more. I don't have time to tell you about it, but all the horrible things here it does. What we do know, and the, 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 the ones who would hear this message in Rome know it because it was past what happened to Herod and all of his failures. So they, when they hear Herod, they hear, hear this, guy, this guy's lack of morality and lack of faith in Jesus led to incredible destruction. There's a cost for following Jesus, but there's also a cost for not following Jesus. John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I love the fact that John stands up to a guy who can kill him. Mark's wanting us to have the courage to lose our head for Jesus. Don't miss this. And Herodias had a grudge against him, that's his wife again, wanted to put him to death. She doesn't like the fact that John's standing up and saying this is not a good thing. By the way, when you stand up for what God has called us to be as his people in a culture that walk, wants to just run as far away from God having any authority over their lives, you're not going to be popular at times. It's just, if you're fighting for popularity, you won't be able to keep following Jesus very well. She couldn't put him to death for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. So Herod's got something going on at least. He's like, okay, this John's got something. I gotta, I gotta keep listening to him. By the way, let me encourage you, family, when we live in submission to Jesus Christ and out of love, we obey his commandments. Out of love for him, we obey what he asks us to do. You become a people in the world that are also very attractive. It may be offensive, but it's also very attractive because the life that God has is a good life. It's a life-giving life. It's an abundant life. And, and some people are intrigued by it. In fact, some of you are even here going like, yeah, I've gotten to know some of my neighbors or my coworkers, and there's something about them. I, I don't know what it is, but I want it. That's Jesus. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So he kept listening to John, even though he was afraid. He was afraid because he was not a man of integrity. I'll tell you what, there's nothing more frightful to a person of, who has no integrity than someone who does. It's one of the most respected things that we have is when we stand up for what we believe with deep conviction regardless of the cost. It's also a very fearful thing because people know we, we, we will die for what we believe in. That's a scary thing to be around. But an opportunity came when Herod on, Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And sadly, Herodias is willing to sell her daughter's services to get what she really wants. Can I just say that when we give ourselves into sin, the, 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 the consequences are far-reaching and the damage is incredible. Parents, please know, the sin you are engaging in right now affects your children. Leaders, the sin that you're engaging in affects those who work under you or serve with you, that you have authority over, it affects them. There is no such thing as a non-consequential sin. Every sin has consequences. In fact, I was teaching our kids the, the commandments this last week and we were walking through the, the fact that our sin has effects to the third and fourth generations. And we see it here in Herod's family. Mom sends Salome, that's the daughter's name, in and she basically engages in an exotic dance in front of her dad and all of his guests. And she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. You can only imagine the kind of dance that would lead a man to do that. And we don't need to imagine much. Let's not stay there. But he vows to her, ask me whatever, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. This is the thing I've learned. When we give into sin, we do stupid things. 
We do stupid things. I've done them. I look back in my, my years apart from Jesus and the way in which I gave in to sin and did stupid things. I look back and I think, man, I want to warn people of the deceptive nature of sin. It promises something it can't deliver. It tells you to give you life, but it gives you death. It gives you destruction. And that isn't just you. It affects a lot of people. Herod's family is a mess. And she goes out to her mother and you know how crazy she is because what should I ask for? And her mom says, the head of John the Baptist. You'd think the daughter would go like, Mom, have you lost your mind? Have you lost your head? No, John's gonna. I mean, it's nuts. It's almost like she doesn't even blush because they're so broken. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. You'd think the party would have gotten like just a little thrown off kilter at this moment. Don't you think? And then you realize they're all messed up. Sin corrupts. And it corrupts to great degrees. And the king was exceedingly sorry. And in some ways you almost see a guy like he's realizing, wait a minute. This is not, how did I get here? How did I become like this? And because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Sin has cost, and in this case, Herod has got more concern for people and what he think, they think of him than he does life itself. Life of a godly man. The Bible talks about two kinds of sins, or sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow that's just sorry, and then there's a godly sorrow that leads to Repentance. Herod had the first. And we're told that that kind of sorrow leads to death, ultimately. It leads to more destruction. But a godly sorrow leads to repentance where we turn to God f- for help. Forgive me. Change me. Cleanse me. Rescue me. I don't want to live in this slavery anymore. I don't know what you've experienced. I hope you've experienced godly sorrow, but if not, I pray today is the day you experience godly sorrow for the first time. That you say, I don't want this anymore. My sin is destroying me. My sin is destroying my family. My sin is destroying my friends. I don't want it anymore. Jesus, save me from my sin. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body. They laid it in a tomb. Do you hear the language of John, or Mark talking about what's going to happen with Jesus? Similar language. When they take Jesus' body and lay it in a tomb. And the disciples returned to Jesus and they told him all that had, they'd done and taught. That's a weird thing. You're like, wait a minute. I was just in the story of Herod. Why do we go back to the disciples? Because Mark wants you to realize that these disciples are willing to lose their life for the, for the one who gave his life for them. And, and he's putting it right next to Herod who's willing to take life because he's given so much over to sin. And later, John's gonna, Jesus is going to say, as Mark records in, in verse 34 of chapter 8, Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark wants us to understand there is a cost. There's a cost to follow Jesus. It will cost you your life. But that doesn't bother you because you already gave him your life. There's also a cost to not following Jesus. It will cost you your life. Both lead to death. One leads to freedom and abundant life. The other leads to destruction and ongoing enslavement in your life. 
What are you going to die for? That's the question I think Mark's wanting us to ask. Which will you die for? Will you die for the one who died for you? Or you die and just die? This Friday, we're going to remember the one who died for us. Mark ultimately wants us to be brought to the cross in this story. And just, just let me just rehearse this and then we'll, we'll end. Just as John, though considered righteous and holy, was wrongly executed by a political tyrant, swayed by public opinion, so will Jesus, who is truly holy and righteous, without sin, be wrongly accused, arrested, and crucified as, Paul, as Pilate also acquiesces to the crowds and their cry, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And just as John dies as a victim of Herod's sin, Jesus will die as the true innocent victim for our sin. Just as John's martyrdom is a testimony both to the cost of righteousness but also a clear cry against unrighteousness because sin is destructive and leads to death, so Jesus' death is a testimony of the cost of our righteousness because he died for our sin. Sin's costly. Cost the Son of God his life. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so we could become the righteousness of God in him. And just as Jesus cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, you and I get forgiven for all the ways in which we fail to count the cost. All the ways in which we choose death instead of life. All the ways in which we choose self instead of Jesus. See, here's the really good news in some ways. John wants to say, you could choose death to self and ultimate life, there's a cost, or you could choose self and death. But let me tell you, you choose both, and therefore you needed one who would choose death for you, and that's Jesus Christ. There's one who really counted the cost, it's Jesus. There's one who really knew what he was getting into, it's Jesus, and here's the deal. He knew how bad it would be to take on our sin, and he did it regardless. Recently, I was talking to someone who was suffering. They said, how do you get through suffering? I said, you keep going to the one who suffered for you, and you keep remembering that he willingly did it for you, and that if there's anyone who never deserved to suffer, it was Jesus Christ, but if there's anyone who willingly, with all his heart, suffered for us, it's Jesus Christ. And as you go to him in your suffering, you go to him in your rejection, you go to him in your persecution, you go to him in your struggles, and you realize there's one who suffered for you without sin and made it all the way through death and new life as he was risen again from the dead, then you can count the cost that he counted for you, and therefore you can press on with the power of Jesus to not give up. It's good news, eh? Amen. Yeah, let's thank God for Jesus. And let's pray together. I went a little longer, so count the costs. <laughs> Father, I'm so thankful that Jesus knew what he was getting into and didn't run away from it, but ran into it for us. Help us now to give our lives to the one who gave his life first to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for the Unexpected Jesus series as we walk through the book of Mark at Doxa Church. Doxa Church exists to equip people to live for Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. For more information, go to doxa-church.com.